0: Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. This is episode 42, and this is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the superfluous is of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss Gus Fring and his tie adjustment techniques, Christopher Nolan and his dislike of primary colors, and how the Fast and Furious franchise unapologetically ripped off Point Break. So tragic. Point Break should be a multi-billion dollar franchise. It grinds my gears. But no quote is too minor, no plot, side plot too small, this is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers, your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld level daily observations. Really enjoy this. So I'm feeling pretty spry today. And that's a weird word. I think that's a word only for elderly people. I don't think I'm in that category yet. But I don't know, I like saying it, spry. But uh, late last night I was bored, hungry. You ever get that? You're just like not doing anything. You're just like, I'm going to shovel something in my mouth. And all I had in my fridge was a big, bag of pla- a big plastic bag of uh, arugula. So I found myself chewing lettuce in front of my fridge at 2.33 a.m. And I felt like a grazing cow. And it felt surreal. And I'm not sure why, but I think the blandness of the snack, the glaze of boredom in my eyes, I was just kind of staring off into space. I just started laughing, like hysterically. I just felt like a cut scene from a Judd Apatow movie. I felt very Paul Rudd or Steve Carell. Or uh, Ron Burgundy esque kind of. So that was fun. And I don't know, it's strange what your brain creates late at night. I guess that's why they do Saturday Night Live at night. I think Lauren Michael's been interviewed by that. Like people get funnier and goofier when the sun goes down. I'm definitely I'm definitely of that camp. I believe that. And when I was done thinking about shoveling lettuce in my mouth and being in a Jed Apatow movie, I started thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Anyone anyone read it? And he's just a really smart researcher guy who kind of just picks interesting things to just go full level research assistant on. And he found out that the point of expertise, like when you're in the 99th percentile of expertise in something, it's generally because you've had 10,000 hours of practicing that specific, uh, skill, you know, whether it be cooking, basketball, mowing the lawn, doesn't matter. So that's five, five hours a day, five days a week for about 10 years. So I started to, to do the math on the podcast <laughs> to see how close I am. Because I, I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, I've done a lot of these. So I got to be somewhat close. <laughs> and I'm at like 19 or 20 hours. So the good news is I can look forward to some serious improvement over the thousands of pods I have in front of me. <laughs> and the bad news is, sweet Jesus, that's a lot of airtime to fill. But, 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 my TV and movie watching is way above 10,000 hours. I'm at like, I didn't do the math on it yet, but I mean, I probably watch seven, eight hours a day, every day of my life. So I don't know, 34 years old. I, I can't do the math right now. I'm not, I'm not a calculator, but uh, I'll figure that out next time. I'll let you know how much TV I've theoretically watched. And podcasting is essentially talking. So not to brag, but I've been talking pretty fluently in English since I was like 12. So... I got, I got this covered. I've been talking a lot. No, I mean maybe my first word was when I was three. I think I don't know. I think it was apple. My grandma held an apple in front of me, and she's like, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna get it unless you say it." And I just got frustrated and said, "Apple," and I just took it. <laughs> so there's a reason why I was a fat kid in high school. You know, what I mean, my first word, my first words were churned out because I was hungry and I needed something. I needed an apple. Still love a good apple. Honeycrisp for life. Nothing else. Screw Fijis. Screw macintosh they're mealy i'm a Honeycrisp or die guy i mean if you're t- if you have another kind of apple you're just wrong you're doing it wrong but uh now instead of talking about the beginning of life and the bright future of like you know of what's ahead i kind of want to get into the dark the morose the macabre the lugubrious yeah that's a good one right look that one up the melancholy the thesaurus no, 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 not that last one. <laughs> That's what I used for the other ones, my bad. Uh, I wanna talk about the most memorable scene, uh, I mean, memorable on-screen movie deaths because it's not only one of the biggest parts of movie and entertainment allure, it's one of the biggest parts of life and it can crush us when our beloved characters pass on. I mean, you are Marley and me when the dog passed away. Oh my God, you know, just just uh, tears everywhere. Men, female, it doesn't matter. Or it can be an emphatic victory cigar on a hero's journey, generally in an action movie, usually an 80s, 90s action movie. And you kind of, in the crowd, I always remember in a good action movie, you do kind of a fist pump and kind of an internal, like, yeah, when uh, the bad guy finally dies at the end. So I think that's universal. I think everyone kind of does that, that little, mm, you know, it's kind of like, like someone like drop kick you in the stomach and you let out a little groan, like, hmm, that, that's what happens. Or it can be used with cunning to surprise, shock or horrify us. And side note, I'm not doing horror movie deaths. It's too easy, and that's kind of a farce. I'm just a scaredy cat, and I avoid horror movies like The Plague. Why do I want nightmares? Why do I want jump scares? Life is scary enough as is. And I've heard the psychology behind horror movies. The reason why we like them is because you jolt because you think you're going to die. Your brain just has this fight-or-flight kind of reaction to the stimulus and then when you realize you're not gonna die, you just start laughing like a serotonin release comes out. But I don't need that. I'm happy enough as is, just existing. So no thank you, Friday the Thirteenth, Jason, go away, Freddy Krueger, and no, no guy with a scream mask talking to Drew Barrymore on the phone about scary movies. None of that. Okay, you know this is a happy place, even though we're talking about death. And but there's not a specific there's not like just a general death thing. I found that there has to be categories because there's many forms of death. So I broke them into kind of just different varieties of life ending. So I want to start with like the, oh God, shock value ones where you nervously laugh five seconds after your brain recovers from the death. And first one obviously came to mind was, want to see a magic trick? The pencil scene from uh, Dark Knight, from the Dark Knight. Uh, joker you know putting a pencil through some dude's eyeball and i don't know this scene just i think everyone had the same response to this it's only the second scene you had with the joker it's daylight he's crashing a meeting of all these high-level mob- mobsters and no one knew what he meant the first time you saw this and he said i'm gonna make this pencil disappear you're like well how's he gonna do that is he actually gonna do a magic trick is this like a chris angel david blaine thing is he a magician in this one you didn't know and then when he puts it through that dude's eye, you're like, wait, this movie's PG-13. And this is pretty cringe-worthy gore. I mean, things through eyeballs, bleh. I mean, everyone has that kind of, you know, reaction to that. And when he finally does it, it just goes, ta-da! That kind of remorselessness, it just solidified who and what the Joker was. You know, you stood up in your seat, you kind of felt that electricity in your spine. And you're only 20 minutes into the movie. So you're like, great, I'm in for an awesome movie. You know what I mean? It just solidified. So, I mean, anytime I get a chance to put the Joker in anything, I could be, like, doing top 10 on-screen kisses. And for somehow I'd somehow squeeze in Heath Ledger's Joker somehow. Did he kiss anyone in that movie? He got pretty close with Maggie Gyllenhaal, but not really. But any, any excuse to put Joker in. And this one actually works. So I'm counting it. It was the first thing I thought of. And then we got second. I got Russell Franklin from Deep Blue Sea. So first of all, if you don't know Deep Blue Sea, it's the most insane movie plot of all time. It's a team of underwater scientists studying Alzheimer effects, and because sharks' brains don't uh, deteriorate over time, you know, I mean, you've seen, the, there's online, there's sharks, like Greenland sharks, that can live to like 400 years old, it's crazy. So I mean, I guess there there might be some truth to that, that their brains don't deteriorate, so maybe we need to be more like sharks, but, uh they can't get enough material out of the brains of the sharks so they increase the brain material by like you know giving the brains steroids basically and makes the sharks smarter. So the sharks become basically like an intelligent pack of dogs and start picking off the scientists one by one. I mean what a brilliant idea for a movie. That's just whoever did that I want to shake their hand and you know kiss their forehead and tell them they've made my life so much happier that they put this idea into the world. Can you imagine pitching that in a movie in a like a producer's room. Fantastic balls on that guy or gal so super smart sharks and you know halfway through Ru- uh, russell franklin is kind of the the money guy for for this uh underground lab and he's played by samuel jackson so you're like oh he's the biggest star in the movie you know he's gonna at least survive till you know way down the road no big deal and halfway through the movie they get to kind of a safe space they're on land you know what i mean like so they're not near any uh water or anything like that and He's given this motivational speech about how, how he survived a snow avalanche. And, like, he's, gonna, he's doing like a halftime coach speech. He's like, We're going like, to get together and we're going to survive and we're going to be better as a group. And halfway through, there's this intense close up of Samuel L. Jackson's sweaty face. And then a shark comes out of the water, out of this like, little hole you didn't see, and rips him in half and takes him below. And it's so hilarious. It's so unexpected. And just to have a major star murdered mid-speech, unheard of. And it fits the movie perfectly. Some movies just have this weird, fun tone that you don't really expect going in. Like John Wick, when they said he's doing, he's doing all these murders and getting on, get his hands dirty because he's, doing, he's, having, he's, crea- he's uh, taking revenge for his dog being murdered. It lowers the stakes, expectations, and lets the viewer relax and enjoy the ride. And this is the same thing. And Samuel Jackson is excellent dying, by the way. But I found out he's not even the in the top ten of the most on-screen deaths. And do you know who the leader is the one who who's died the most. I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a clue before you have to think about it. Ready? Neil. Neil. Anything? Anything? Bueller? No. Well, it is. Uh, it's Danny Trehow. who that was a uh, that was heat. I was doing by the way a bad heat. I mean. Trey Howe's got a very unique voice, but uh, he's died a staggering 65 times on screen. I mean, that's crazy. And, I, you know, and then I started thinking about the movies he's in, like Con Air and other ones. And the only non-death I can think of is him as a bartender and anchorman. So what a gem. I just love him so much. And he owns a little donut shop uh, in LA, and he loves pink. And he's just an adorable guy, even though he just looks like this mean mugging kind of guy. So props to Danny Trey Howe. He just made my life better. And finally, for Hilarity Deaths, there's another Samuel L. Jackson performance. It's, him, it's the other guys. He's playing uh, Detective P.K. Highsmith, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson is playing Detective Christopher Danson. Great cop names, by the way. So they're like the hero cops in this movie, and Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg are like the B-team. So you think they're just going to you know, make fun of Wahlberg and Ferrell the whole movie. But there's this uh, money heist going on, and I think they're stealing diamonds or something like that. and. The Rock and uh, Samuel are chasing him on top of a building. And they go down a zip line, the, uh, the criminals do. And Samuel L. and Dwayne look at each other. And they're like, oh, we can make it if we jump to that bush. And, you know, it's like a six-story building. But you've seen it before in movies where people can jump. You know, you got the lethal weapon kind of vibe going. And they got the Foo Fighters, here goes my hero, playing, like, loudly. So you're like, oh, they're going to make it. And they show, like, a low-angle camera shot. So they look like gods. And then the camera, they jump. And you know, the music's blaring, and they're following them, following them. And the, the bushes that they're aiming for just look a little far off. No, maybe they'll get there. No, 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 they're definitely not going to get there. And then <laughs> splat, <laughs> they're just, they hit the sidewalk and just blood everywhere. <laughs> and it's just this hilarious, like, this hilarious, funny tone for a silly Adam McKay movie. And I don't know, it's just really funny. I mean, it's just it takes that trope and puts it on its head. So, all right, so now we've done the comedy stuff. Let's get to more of the badass kind of genre of murder. And if I want to start with badass, I'm going No Country for Old Men. And Anton Segur, who, according to psychologists, is the actual definition of what a sociopath is because he can't feel empathy for other people and doesn't understand empathy, and he can't feel bad for anyone else. So in this movie, he's just randomly killing lots of people because he has his own kind of code. And he has a shotgun with a silencer on it and I found out it just looks so cool because you've never seen that before. It's like, that. can that work? And we, no, it can't actually. It's a weapon that doesn't exist. They had to make it up for the movie. Very cool. And he kills a ton of people. He uses a, like a cattle prod kind of thing. He chokes people out. He's just flipping coins, deciding if he wants to murder people. Doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Weapons don't matter. But his coolest murder, I think, is the one of Woody Harrelson, who's playing another kind of bounty hunter, Carson Wells. And Wells is tracking Sugar. And Shiger kind of secretly sets up in Wells' room. And, you know, it's that classic when you come back to your room and someone's in the dark next to the lamp and they turn it on. Like, I've been expecting you, you know, that kind of thing. And Woody Harrelson is the best half-scared, half-charming when he's kind of calmly pleading for his life, dude, of all time. He's just fantastic. You know, he's got that kind of Southern draw to him, a little charm, but there's a little nervousness, a waver to his voice. He just, I mean, however he does that, Maybe because he's been around death his whole life, because his dad apparently was an actual hitman who in Texas, who this No Country for Old Men story is based on an actual crime in the early 80s in some part of West Texas. His dad's involved in some part of it, actually. So, so bizarre. So that, maybe that's why he's so good. And there's no music in this entire movie, which kind of adds to the tension of these, you know, conversations before death. And Woody's just trying to plead with him. He's like, I got $13,000 in an ATM. I can just we can just go there. I can just go home. I'm a day trader. Just, you know, these. it sounds almost like you could put it on the daily comm app and meditate to the way he's talking to you. And he finally, he realizes that he's not going to get out of it because, you know, Segura is just crazy and has his own rules. And he just, he looks him dead in the eye. He's like, do you realize how crazy you are? And Segura gets kind of upset by it. And it's just great. Great, great way to end. And then you're wondering if he's gonna let him go or not. And then, bam, the phone rings, super loud, super tense. And by the second ring, pow, you know, Woody goes flailing. Segur calmly picks up the phone and listens. And it's just, it's so good. I mean, I could, like I said, Joker, uh, Anton Segur, these are my safe spots. These are my pillows. These are my binkies for uh, movie and TV lore. Next one, I'm going X Men First Class. Uh, This is when I know it's kind of a weird one, but uh, Sebastian Shaw, who's this uh, evil supervillain that wants to create tension between Russia and the war between Russia and the United States in the 1960s. So he can profit as a war profiteer. It's also like a super powerful mutant and Magneto kills him. And it's just it's very cool because Sebastian Shaw worked for the Nazis kind of trying to pick up on mutants. So he found Magneto as a kid. And saw that he had a power to, you know, manipulate metal, but he can only get it out of him when he got angry. So he put a coin on the table for a little, you know, young seven, eight-year-old Magneto. And he's like, move the coin or I'll shoot your mother. And he's like, oh, God, I want to do it. You know, I can't do it. And Sebastian's like, oh, too bad. Pow, shoots his mom in the head. And after that, Magneto gets his power and his anger. You know, I mean, he understands that if he channels his anger, he can do, he can do these things. So chasing Sebastian Shaw for 25, 30 years. Finally gets him frozen because Charles Xavier kind of got into his mind. So it's just Kevin Bacon just like frozen in time right in front of him. So, you know, Michael Fassbender, who does a great job as a Magneto, is kind of just walking around him, telling him how he feels. He picks up that same coin from when he was a kid. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to move the coin. It's like, you have to stop it or I'm going to kill you. And it's like, Kevin, just... Frozen Kevin Bacon and James McAvoy, who's playing Xavier, is screaming for uh, Magneto not to do it. And this is just the fissure point of Magneto and Professor X. So, and it's just a great moment because you realize most of the X Men conflicts are from this. Like, this is the spark moment that separates the two of them and puts them at war the rest of their lives, even though they're friends. It's just chills, just great. And just vindictive Michael Fassbender is my favorite. He's just got that gaunt, thin look to him. I'm so jealous. I've always wanted to be that thin. There's this one scene in that movie where he's wearing a tucked in white polo into khakis in Argentina while he's chasing down Nazis. And when you're like aggressively thin and you have a nice tight belt tuck in, there's just something really cool about that. One day, maybe I'll get there, but I, I mean, probably not. I mean, fastbender's on another level of just thin, gaunt, good looking men. Moving on. So I got Gone Girl. And this is the movie where Amy Dunne fakes her own death and it's blamed on her husband uh, Ben Affleck and to get back into her real life she has to slit her friend's throat Desi Collins played by uh what's his name Neil Patrick Harris and he, she cuts his throat in bed during sex and it's like a graphic sex scene and she needs to make it look like he kidnapped her and she kind of tried to escape and this is david fincher directing this movie and there's not much violence or action in this movie. It's more psychological between uh, the husband and wife. So when he does a, vi- a jarring violence scene, it just shakes the whole movie up. Like the lights are kind of waxing and waning with this warm yellow glow. Trent Reznor is on the soundtrack and there's this thudding, creep fest score that's just kind of creeping through your spine and just like kind of resonating with the lights. And oh my God, I mean, it's so much blood. And you know, it's just covering, enveloping Amy, and it makes you grit your teeth, and it kind of, like, gets you going a little bit, and you're like, why is this pumping me up? This is gross, and this is intense, and this is violent, and she's a psycho, but I'm really digging it, and I want to watch it again, and it's just a knockout blow. Like, Fincher does this in some of his movies. He just, he'll do, like, a normal movie, and then he'll just pick a random scene and be like, oh, yeah, remember, I'm really creepy and really weird, so... Uh never forget that. So it's like the row scene, like the profession the uh Harvard row scene and social network. That doesn't need to be there. It's just a creepy, fun scene. I love Fincher Fincher's take on movie. He's been quoted. He says, Everybody's a pervert and I just want to show it in every one of my movies. I'm like, damn, that's a that's a great quote and it's kind of embarrassing. It's like no one wants to talk about it, but he just wants to bring it up and make people feel weird. So definitely made me feel weird during the scene. It's like you half love it and you half hate yourself for loving it. So good job, Fincher. So now I got Indiana Jones and the last crusade and this is the Nazi face melting scene. (laughs) And you know, they're looking for the, whenever you get a Nazi's face to melt, that's always good. You know, that's always gratifying as a Jew. I'm just like, "Mm, yeah, melt, you Nazi. But uh, they're choosing a Holy grail, you know, for eternal life and the female doctor chooses for the Nazi uh, like the most gorgeous uh, chalice. And it seems logical. Oh, maybe that's for, you know, that's for Jesus. And he's like, I feel good. And he's like, no, wait, I feel weird. And then his hair starts coming off and he starts losing kind of uh, the form of his face and the skin's off. And then the muscle starts melting like hot candle wax. And then you see his teeth kind of go uh, disintegrating and he's down to a skeleton with like kind of long wispy hair, kind of like tails from the crypt stuff. And then he explodes. And he's like, oh man, and the grail guy goes he chose poorly it's like what a great exclamation point for a death And then indy you know being indy picks the great grail he's like jesus was carpenter and he picks like the most unassuming wooden chalice so good for him good for indy and i just want to bring up Indian jones and the last crusade one of my favorite movies and then i got kill bill too i mean kill bill and kill bill two. there's a ton of them i mean you could pick you could literally just close your eyes and pick an uh a time time stamp on any of the movies but I'm going with L killing Bud, uh, Bill's brother, with the black mamba steak. That's just cool because she's promising this uh, thing of cash for killing uh, for killing the bride, and he opens the cash and it's there. You see the cash, and then you see the snake, and it's not big, but it just like hisses and then it goes right for Bud's face. Bam, two hits, pew, pew, like right on his cheeks, and he just starts seizing up pretty much instantly, and you know foaming from the mouth and puffing up on the face. And Elle is just being the ultimate villain, you know, just she looks up in her little notebook, uh, like kind of the National Geographic description of how the Black, black Mamba can kill you and how much poison it has in its body. And she's kind of telling Bud how he's dying while he's dying. And just poison deaths are just great for on-screen acting. You know, you're flailing and flopping like a piece of bacon sizzling in a pan. It's just a unique death. And she's just telling him what she really thinks of him. And I don't know. There's something cathartic and cool about it. It's in a it's in a dumpy trailer, too. And he's, like, making really gross margaritas in a broken-down blender. I don't know. Just something in the middle of the desert. Just the whole vibe. Tarantino always knows how to have a good vibe with his desk. And now the classic, I'm going Die Hard, Hans Gerber's Fall from the top of Nakaz- Nakazaki? Nakatomi Plaza. And, you know, it's, like, a huge, tall building. And it's classic. Got to love a good falling off a building. Perfect ending to a perfect movie. And fun fact, they actually dropped him 90 feet for this uh, for this reaction shot. And they were gonna, They said, like, we're going to go on three. Are you ready? We're going to count on one, two, three, and then go and release you. And they go one, and then they release them. <laughs> so that reaction of Hans Gruber falling is actually Alan Rickman's real reaction because he wasn't expecting to drop him that, at that point. What a perfect end to him. And small... Uh, fact about Alan Rickman this was his first movie performance ever he was just a stage actor so how cool is that that his first movie performance he's one of the all time villains he's Hans Gruber I mean I don't think there's ever been a better first role for someone and he was like 40 when he got it unbelievable Uh, Thelma and Louise classic you know I mean uh, two women finding themselves and then uh, driving off a cliff together and holding hands you know fades to white just, a, it felt appropriate to the movie that they had kind of learned who they were and they were confident in themselves. And, you know, there was nothing else for them to do. So they just, they, RIP. It just, it sticks with you. And I didn't know Ridley Scott directed that too. You know, the guy who did Alien and Gladiator. Kind of crazy. It seems like a different movie for him. But I guess dude's versatile. Good for him. Does the Avengers snap count? Because they come back. I mean, at the moment though, when you see all of them kind of just fade to black and Spider-Man's like, I don't feel so good, Mr. Stark. You know, just fade off. Maybe Iron Man at the end of the actual Avengers when he's snapping and he has to go in the whole I Love You 3000 thing. You know, I felt for that. Uh, Mufasa's Lion King fall. I mean, classic. Well, not fall. Scar kind of, you know, just lets him go. But I mean, I think that if, I'm still affected by that. Every kid who watches that, you know, loses their mind. I don't know why Disney is really adept at letting kids get emotional because there's a lot of death. Why, why is there so much death in Disney? Is that ever talked about? I'm sure there's some Reddit board I'll check out. And okay, so I got the cool death down and I got the se- now I got the selfless deaths. The here I'll kind of put in the exclamation point on their glory. You know, their story will be told forevermore. And who's more glorious and more heroic than Harry S. Stamper from Armageddon? I mean, he saves the planet from a meteor with a nuclear bomb that he drilled himself and he went into space. And that scene, you know, they draw straws and him and his son-in-law uh aj aj gets the short straw but when they're going down he wants to say goodbye to him quote unquote and he breaks aj's oxygen and rips off his patch and he's like give this to you know billy bob's dude because he likes flying like to have the to have the clarity of thought in that moment to be like billy bob wanted to be an astronaut so i'm gonna give him this little piece props to that and just i mean utterly heroic And he goes take care of grace now that's your job like Oh my God, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. And he gets to say goodbye to his daughter too, you know, Liv Tyler and on the screen. And then he has the perfect kind of Michael Bay life flash before your eyes moment where he's in a spotlight in darkness and just, you know, kind of uh, all the good things in his life are flashing before him. And stylistically, Michael Bay is perfect for this. He should just, he should charge $100,000 or $200,000 a pop and just do rich people's, you know, life be flashed before your eyes moment. you can put it on a screen on your uh, tombstone. Or maybe more for Michael Bay, 500,000 or something like that. I'd pay. I mean, I'd be, I'm dead, so who cares? But uh, I mean, maybe I want to help out the family. Well, my family's gonna be fine. Yeah, I want it. I want it. Michael Bay, make my, make my, uh, make my gravestone TV, okay? Do it. And then afterwards to Colonel Woolly Sharp, uh, I want to get back down, request to shake uh, the hand of the, bra- shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man I've ever met. It's like, man, Harry, Harry did it. Harry. Harry did it. God. (sighs) Bruce Willis, man. Speaking of Bruce Willis, this is my last one. This is the most clever death of all of them. And it's the movie Looper. And this is just a clever sci-fi movie in general. It's about time travel is in the future. And, you know, the future is kind of crappy. You know what I mean? It's one of those dystopian futures where electricity and food are hard to find. And you got young Joe, who's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And he's a killer who goes through time to kill people. Like, they assassinate people through time. That's why they're called loopers. And his old self, his old Joe, Bruce Willis, comes back and wants to, like, fix everything he's done wrong. So they're kind of battling with each other for what timeline they're gonna have. And, you know, so usually in these movies, that's kind of, like, chaotic and the world's a dark place. And eventually, the old Joe is doing the same things that are going to make the world terrible again. Like he's kind of part of the cycle of, you know, tragedy and death. And young Joe kind of sees this all and he's, he's trying to chase old Joe and stop him. But he realizes he just has this moment of clarity at the very end. And this whole movie's frantic. It's chase scenes. It's people moving, people trying to, trying to survive. He kind of just this one moment and he's like, Oh wait, if I don't exist like now, then none of this happens. So he just selflessly kind of, flips the shotgun on himself in a quiet like there's no music or anything he just flips it on himself and then just fires and just falls backwards and then everything fades away and it's just quiet brilliant and it's rain johnson who directed this he's done a bunch of breaking bad later seasons like ozymandias the episode he did that he also did the second new star wars when i'm not going to talk about but he's he's a great director in general and this everything fades and it's so brilliant your brain can't even really compute it till you're out of the theater when the lights are on. You know when like the lights are on your eyes are kind of still glossed over and you're like, oh, that actually happened. I don't know what's going on. And films about time travel are never that crisp and tidy in the end. It's more about the story itself and the wrap up. And this one nailed the wrap up. Like the landing was perfect. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, even now, I'm just gonna have to think about life and reality and what I self-sacrifice like that, you know, for a better world. I mean, that, I think that's the, the crux of it is that you ask yourself if you do it and you kind of need your, you're like, no, probably not. You're like, well, not a great person. We're not as good as, not as good as Joe at this, in this moment, but, uh, oh, someone's calling me, but, uh, never mind. <laughs> uh, I'll talk to my mom in a second. <laughs> I'm almost done. Mom, I promise. Okay. So, I mean, the moral of the story is we're all going to take a dirt nap someday. So we should enjoy these days while we got them. So, I'm going to write positive messages and pastel colored chalk on my sidewalk. And I suggest you do the same. So have fun. Later.